Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Our response. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So it's significant that all four Gospels begin with this account of John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord. And the reason that all four Gospels make such a big deal of John the Baptist is that from his very birth, God had set him apart for this role, this mission of announcing and proclaiming that the Messiah, the one true king, has arrived. So a little quick backstory, according to the Gospel of Luke on John the Baptist, his father, Zechariah, was in the temple. He was worshiping. And an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah and essentially said, your wife, who is way too old to have a child, will indeed have a child. You will have a son. You're to name him John, and he will be great before the Lord. And then Luke records this, that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. All of this is spoken about John the Baptist. And then Luke adds this, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so here, in Matthew chapter 3, it opens with this public appearance of John the Baptist. And he comes on the scene in verse 3, 
He says, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So what's the significance when Matthew says, in those days? What's the significance of these days? Well, these are the days leading up to the announcement that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to. The announcement that God was finally breaking into history to rescue his people. And keep in mind that from the time of the Old Testament prophets till this time, there's been 400 years of silence. No voice whatsoever from the prophets. Now, have you ever received the silent treatment? can be agonizing. I once had a roommate that gave me the silent treatment for two months. And no, it was not my wife, Tiffany. <laughs> this, was, uh, this was back in college. Um, and it was actually a bit annoying. But imagine this. Imagine 400 years of silence. And in this time period, God's people have been conquered repeatedly. And they're now under the rule of Rome, known to be really harsh. And so they're waiting. They're waiting for the Messiah. And then here comes John the Baptist, and he gets everybody's attention by what he's preaching, what he's quoting, and what he's wearing. First, what he's preaching. He says in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, a couple of things about what he's preaching. First is this call to repent. We have to understand the biblical notion of repentance. It's not just simply to be sorry. That's part of it. But the idea, the concept of repentance in the scriptures always carries with it a change of heart that leads to a change of actions. So I just want to begin this morning with a quick case study of whether or not this is repentance. Okay. So my daughter, Paige, has three brothers. And so it's safe to say that our house at times can be described as loud, obnoxious, chaotic, right? And so uh, Paige, at times, will escape to her room because her room is her happy place, where it is quiet and calm and orderly. And so every once in a while, as I get, you know, when I get bored, I'll make my way to her room just to kind of mess with her a little bit. And her response is always the same as I start messing with her. It's, Mom, Dad needs attention. <laughs> like, yep, and I'm going to get it right now. So what I'll do is at times I'll pick up a volleyball. She has a volleyball in her room. I'll just start hitting it at her. Um, and after all, she, uh, her role on the volleyball team is as a defensive specialist, so I figure I'm just helping her game. So I'll hit the volleyball, or the other one, and this is actually my favorite. As I mentioned, she's orderly. Her closet is color-coordinated. So I'll just start taking shirts, the blues, and start putting them over with the reds and things like that. She's like, Dad, stop. And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, is that repentance? No, because I fully intend to do it again and again and again. Repentance is actually, it's a change of heart that leads to a change in action. And this is what John the Baptist is proclaiming. He's saying, repent, confess your sins, alter your life in preparation for the coming of the Lord. So John the Baptist is saying, repent. And he goes on to say, the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, anytime when we see in the gospels, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God synonymous with one another. 
And it's God's manifest rule, his, his presence with his people. It's God bringing his rule and his kingdom to bear with his people. And so the prophets anticipated this day of the Lord when God would firmly establish his kingdom. But in John the Baptist's day, they weren't quite sure what this would look like. Perhaps this kingdom would be by way of a king, a military king, who would lead victoriously in battle, right? Overthrow the Romans. Or perhaps this messianic kingdom would be by way of a priestly figure, one who would lead the worship of Israel back to purity so that God would bless his people. But what was not popular was this idea of the Messiah coming as a suffering servant. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. But John is proclaiming, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. What does he mean by near? If I can just say it in a quick rhyme, it's near because Jesus is now here. Right? The one true king has arrived. And with that, the, prof- the prophets spoke of this one to come, which is the other thing that really began to turn people's heads with John the Baptist. It's not just what he was preaching, but what he was quoting. Because John the Baptist, or, or Matthew records that John the Baptist quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, when he says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Okay, so the context of Isaiah 40, this was written to the, to the exiles who were in Babylon. And, and what God would do is raise up various voices, these prophetic messengers that would provide hope for God's people. And so on one hand, um, this is in Isaiah chapter 40, this is, this is hope for the exiles that though they have sinned, God has not forsaken them. That though they are in exile and they've been in rebellion against the Lord and they're being disciplined, God will provide a savior. He will raise up someone to deliver them. So this would have been great hope for the, for the exiles in Babylon. But the full and ultimate fulfillment of this passage of Isaiah 40, of this voice, is in fulfillment with John the Baptist. He is the voice in the wilderness that is preparing the way of the Lord. And and Isaiah 40 goes on to talk about how the glory of the Lord will be revealed. John the Baptist is this voice that's pointing to the glory of the Lord in the Messiah. And so the voice of John the Baptist is one that breaks the 400 years of silence. And the fact that John the Baptist was in the wilderness is no insignificant detail. Not just because Isaiah prophesied of a voice in the wilderness, but also because any time wilderness would be mentioned, uh, Matthew's audience would have understood the wilderness as a place of testing for God's people, but actually also as a place where God would show up powerfully for his people. So John the Baptist is getting everybody's attention, what he's preaching, what he's quoting, but also what he's wearing. Okay, this would have turned some heads. So Matthew goes into detail about how John the Baptist is dressed. And this is not Matthew putting John the Baptist on the red carpet and saying, like, wow, that leather belt really makes that camel attire pop. You know, it's nothing like that. This is getting the reader's attention. The minute that they would read this, they would recognize that somebody else 
And the Old Testament was described in this way. And so we, we're going to do a little, uh, you've got to follow me with a little trail here. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, describes the prophet Elijah as one who wore a garment, a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And then as we move on in the scriptures, the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi said this, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then Malachi continues on in chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so the people in John the Baptist day, they're, they're connecting the dots. Wait, the prophet Malachi spoke of Elijah who was to come. And here we see, um, we see this man out in the wilderness. He's dressed just like Elijah. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Like there's great anticipation with this. And Luke goes on uh, in his gospel to clarify that it was not actually, John the Baptist was not actually Elijah, but came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, the other thing that would have got people's attention is what John the Baptist was eating, right? It says he ate locusts and wild honey. And yes, these are locusts as in like large grasshoppers. Um, So a couple things on that. One, it's fascinating to see the role of John the Baptist, how profound his role is. But he also lived a very poor lifestyle in such a contrast to the religious leaders of the day, which I'll get to in a moment. But I, I found it slightly humorous. One of the, uh, one of the commentators, uh, at, Bill would refer to him as an old dead guy. One of the commentators that wrote on this actually defended John the Baptist. He said, those who enjoy shrimp, mussel, oyster, and frog leg should not find fault with those who eat locusts. But, so if you're planning on watching the Chiefs game later, munching on some frog leg, don't judge John the Baptist, right? Um, but what's happening in this context is we have basically all of the surrounding areas coming out and they're being baptized and, and, and repenting and confessing their sins. Okay, and so John the Baptist is calling everybody to this. Now, here's what would have been normal. What would have been normal in that day is for Gentiles, non-Jews, to be baptized. And by doing that, that's showing, um, that's showing a break with their former way of life. They're, they'd be baptized symbolic of cleansing their, you know, their impurities, so to speak. But here's what would have been shocking in this day. It would have been shocking that John the Baptist was not just calling Gentiles to this baptism. He was calling the Jewish people, the Israelites, did this same baptism, including the scribes and the Pharisees, who were known as the religious authorities of the day. So like the Pharisees, um, the, the Sadducees, they were part of the, part of the religious rulers of the day. Um, Pharisees were known for their separation. They would separate themselves from any pagan influence, Whatsoever, any ideas or practices of pagans or Gentiles, they'd separate themselves. They wanted to be pure and clean, right? And as well, they were strict, uh, strictly obedient to the law, sought to follow the law, even so much so they, they came up with a set of their own laws just to keep themselves from, tr- from breaking the law of God in any way, shape, or form. So you can imagine, as John is calling them to baptize, Let's go with that again. Baptism. They're like, uh, 
John, do you know who we are? Like, we don't need that. Okay, then you have the Sadducees, who would have been known more so for their compromise. So they, um, it was really important for them to stay close. Uh, and they did their best to stay close to the Roman authorities at the time, because that's where they were able to establish um, positions of power and privilege. They were oftentimes wealthy. And so when John's calling them to baptism, it'd be, uh, you know, John, don't make this huge stir, right? Because things are going well for us. We're, we're okay right now. But John is calling everybody, Gentiles, Jews, religious leaders, calling everybody to baptism to say, you're all filthy. You all need to repent of your sins. Prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. And as you can imagine, this will not go well with the religious leaders of the day. We find this in verses 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, as we read this, um, realize that based on the Greek, there's a little bit of debate here. As the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming out, it's debate whether they were coming for baptism, meaning they were themselves being baptized, or coming to where John was baptizing. But either way, uh, we should keep this in mind. If they are coming out for baptism, we know that it was wrong motives. And how do we know? Because John the Baptist refers to them as a brood of vipers. Right? That imagery is startling. One of cunning, poisonous, you know, slithering, ready to strike. That's how he's describing them. And he goes on to say... Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And this wrath is speaking of the wrath of God that's reserved for those that reject God's way of salvation. Right? And then John the Baptist um, goes on. But notice this. He holds out hope for escape from this coming wrath. He tells them in verse 8 to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And again, John's bringing up repentance. Right? And again, repentance is not just about feeling bad about something. Repentance is a conviction of the heart, which leads to changed lives. Okay? We could say that repentance has this notion of backward and forward, of backward, looking and, and saying, yes, I acknowledge my sin. And then it's a change of heart, and it's turning from that and going in the other direction. That's the concept of repentance. And so John the Baptist goes on to say to the scribes and Pharisees, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up the children of Abraham. In other words, John the Baptist saying, hey, scribes and, and Sadducees, don't name drop Abraham. Okay. John would understand they would take great pride and comfort in the fact that they were descendants from Abraham. They were the chosen ones, God's people. But here's what the, here's what the religious leaders of the day, what they failed to recognize, is that God also had a, play, a plan 
and a way and a hope for Gentiles, for sinners to be able to enter into the kingdom through Christ. But the other thing the religious leaders failed to recognize and failed to grasp and apply to their lives was the scriptures that warned of judgment if they continue with a hard heart, if they do not repent, if they do not bear fruit. And then it's likely, as John the Baptist is uh, around the Jordan River, that he pointed to some stones and said, hey, um, God is able, if he desires, to raise up these stones as followers. So don't just appeal to yourselves as children of Abraham. And, And here's the point John is making. It's not about your strict performance to the law because you don't recognize that you break the law all the time because you don't embrace it from the heart. And it's not about your family heritage. It's not about where you come from. It is about a radical repentance of the heart. And it's about the grace of God. And then in verse 10, he gives this strong warning. He says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. John's given this picture of an axe by trees, ready to cut them down, cast them into the fire, which would be the judgment of hell. Now, may seem ironic to us that John's name actually means Jehovah is gracious because he's uh, preaching fire and brimstone. He's preaching judgment, right? At the same time, we should recognize, we need to recognize that any time that we warn people of a wrath that's to come unless they, unless they re- repent and embrace Christ, that's always a gracious act. John goes on, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. So John is saying, okay, my baptism was preparatory, preparing for the way of the Lord. But there is one that's coming. He's mightier than I. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, that sounds intense, right? What does that mean? Again, there's a little bit of um, debate over this, because on one hand... To be baptized with the Holy Spirit, as we read in Scripture, it clearly means uh, to receive Christ, to be in Christ. And if we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in our lives. And so this would be speaking of the believer. But fire oftentimes is associated with wrath. So could this be a reference to those who are unbelievers um, experiencing the wrath? Yes, but... Um, This can also have multiple applications. And so I want to quote a theologian I think puts it really well. Often in scripture, fire symbolizes wrath. But fire is also indicative of the work of grace. And he's speaking of the Lord's refining fire in our own lives as our faith is tested. uh, He goes on to say, It's not strange, therefore, that this term can be used both in a favorable sense, meaning purifying our faith, And in an unfavorable sense, to indicate the terrors of the coming judgment day for unbelievers. It is Christ who both purifies the righteous and purges the earth of its dross, the wicked. So with that, here's the bottom line. The coming of the kingdom of God either uh, demands repentance 
and to produce fruit. Or the coming of the kingdom of God brings judgment. So I think this call of the repentance in Matthew 3 demands that we take an inventory of our own lives. How seriously uh, do we take this notion of repentance, of confession of sin, the kingdom of God is near? And to what does it mean to bear fruit and to take this seriously? So about a month or so ago, uh, I was watching a documentary on NASA, and, and specifically the space shuttle program. And they were talking about what went wrong with the space shuttle Challenger. If, if you recall, this was back in January of 1986, that right after takeoff, Challenger exploded due to faulty O-rings and the rocket booster, okay, um, killing all seven of the crew members. But with this documentary, here's what got my attention. They had a sociologist named Diane Vonnen, and she summed up what went wrong with this term that she coined. She said the problem was the normalization of deviance. Normalization of deviance, and, and she defines it like this. It's the gradual process through which unacceptable practice or standards become acceptable. As the deviant behavior is repeated without catastrophic, without catastrophic results, it becomes the so social norm for the organization. And then Vaughn goes on to describe this phenomenon, that normalization of deviance, as occurring when people become so insensitive to deviant practices that it no longer feels wrong. Insens insensitivity occurs insidiously, meaning gradually and subtle, but with harmful effects. She goes on to saying, sometimes over years. So here's what hit me. What caught my attention is that the normalization of deviance isn't just for NASA. This is my life, and this is your life. How does the normalization of deviance apply to Matthew 3? God sent his son, who was anticipated by the prophets and announced by John the Baptist. And with his son, he brought the kingdom of God. And the scriptures, especially Colossians 1, talks about that if we're in Christ, we have been transferred from the kingdom or the domain of darkness and transferred into the king, uh, into the kingdom of the Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. The normal, but anytime we sin, that's deviant. And the very thing that we're doing in those moments is we're just creeping back towards the darkness in those moments. So, the normalization of deviance for the Christian is the gradual process where we become so insensitive to deviant practice or our sin that it no longer really feels wrong. We can justify it. We minimize it. And it occurs insidiously, meaning gradually, over time. But it leads to disaster. And so the question from my life, in your life, is where is the normalization of deviance creeping into your life? Where have we become too comfortable with sin? Sin has become just too normal. Have you become too comfortable with how you treat and talk about other people? Gossip, slander. Too comfortable with interrogating people in your mind, but not actually moving towards forgiveness 
are moving towards a conversation with that person towards peace? Have you become too comfortable with screens and the deviant images on screens, whether it's a computer or an iPhone? Click, 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 swipe, swipe, swipe. Have you become too comfortable with an emotional connection with that person who is not your husband or your wife? Have you become too comfortable spending money, not out of necessity, but to try to bring happiness to your life? And maybe not asking the question is, what does it mean to be a good steward of the gifts that God has provided? Have you become too comfortable escaping to TV, Netflix, social media, just wasting time and drinking in the culture? Too comfortable with pouring that extra drink? Too comfortable with a morning or an evening routine that doesn't include the scriptures or prayer? How about in the workplace? Too comfortable with shady practices that compromise your integrity and your witness? Just thinking about our youth with this one. Or too comfortable, whether in your schools or extracurricular activities, uh, just too comfortable going along with the crowd. And even recognizing at times when we're with the crowd to look out and see others at times are treated horribly, right? But, but we can be different, and God has called us to be different and to step into those moments, right? We're always becoming more or less holy in our moment-to-moment lives. A few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus will describe the heart of a true follower of Christ, and it's one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And maybe this is a great prayer for us. Lord, that I would hunger and thirst for righteousness more than this deviant sin that is taking me down a path that I actually don't want to go down. And then verses 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So John is reluctant to baptize Jesus. And you can imagine, I mean, John, at this point, would not have had everything figured out, the full nature of this king and this kingdom, but he knew enough to know he was not worthy to baptize Jesus. But Jesus' answer is, but, it, but yes, John, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Essentially this, that in this moment of time, it is fitting that John baptize Jesus to fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament of this one announcing that the Messiah has come. And it's also fitting that in this moment of time, Jesus takes on the mission of what the scriptures refer to as the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. Jesus takes on the mission to identify with his people and take upon himself their sin. Now, in this baptism, does Jesus need to be cleansed of his own sin? No. No, he was sinless. But the scriptures prophesied about this servant of the Lord who would identify with his people, and give his life for them, to rescue them 
from their sin and the consequences of their sin. And so Isaiah 52 and 53, for time's sake, I'll just summarize. Um, This all spoke of Jesus, right? Spoke that he would be exalted, but before he's exalted, he would be beaten so severely that he would be hardly recognized. That he would offer to cleanse the nation with the sprinkling of his blood, but before that he would be rejected by most of humanity. That he would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, but he would be considered cursed. And then, to quote Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 11. The righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So in this moment, I was, I was, reading, uh, I was reading a pastor from a sermon in 1996 on this, very, uh, on this very passage. It was actually Bill Vogler. And as I was reading, by the way, I finished my sermon and then read, because I didn't want to feel too bad. Um, but he, uh, or utilized too much of his stuff. But I came across this paragraph and I thought, yes. To quote Bill, who's not here this morning, he's worshiping with his daughter in Kansas City. He perfectly identifies with us, taking upon himself our form, a human being, and taking upon himself our sin and perfectly doing that. Perfect identification so that when the father looked upon the son, he saw my sins. He didn't see Jesus' sin because Jesus didn't have any sin. He saw my sins. Jesus identified with me that closely, that perfectly. My particular sins were on him. Your particular sins were on him. Not just sort of in a general way, because God didn't, uh, God didn't go to this rubber stamp box when Jesus was on the cross and just stamped sin on his forehead in a generic kind of way. Jesus took the particular sins of particular people on the cross. And when he was baptized, he identified with us. And on the cross, that baptism was a perfect identification with our sins. It should blow our mind that the Lord of the universe took on flesh and identified us, our particular sins on the cross, to set us free. Verse 16, as we come to the end, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Now, side note, that immediately he went up from the water. So some of you, if you have a picture in your mind of this, you see Jesus being immersed under the water and coming up. Others of you see Jesus standing in the Jordan River with John pouring or sprinkling water over his head and then him coming out of the water. I have a word of the Lord for you. Just love each other. And let's move on. And behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Note the Trinity here. Jesus is baptized into his mission. The Spirit of God 
rest on him. The voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that, um, and that sentence there most likely a reference to two Old Testament passages. Isaiah 42.1, and these are both pointing to Jesus. Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then Psalm 2, verse 7. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So here's what's fascinating. In Matthew, in chapter 1, Matthew claimed Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. But it isn't until we get to chapter 3, and what Matthew does is he waits and allows God the Father himself to declare Jesus the son of God, the beloved son. And God the Father is well pleased with his son. And he's well pleased to put the mission of the cleansing of the nations for those who would repent in him. He's pleased to put that mission on his son. And so this last thought, and what's our calling in this? Our calling is to take seriously the call to repent of our normalization of deviance. To recognize that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's here because Christ initiated it. And Jesus will return to bring the kingdom fully to bear. And in that time, we're to confess our sins. We're to long for hope for his return. We're to center our lives on Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus will command his followers here in a few chapters to go out into the world as his salt and his light. Let's pray together. So, Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your plan of salvation, that the Old Testament prophets anticipated it. John the Baptist proclaimed it, that in Christ the kingdom is near. Thank you for that hope, that you are truly with us. And thank you for the hope that you will return in power and in glory. And I pray as we await your return that you would help us to take seriously in our own lives the normalization of deviance. That we would see our sin, recognize it, repent of it, recognize that in those sins we are just creeping back towards darkness. But help us, help us to cling to Christ and the light that he brings. So thank you for our time and your word for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And please stand for the benediction. And now receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.